this morning. Thank you, worship team, for uh, leading us today. And uh, man, we are, um, today is our, our building fund Sunday. I forgot to mention this earlier. And uh, for those of you that might be new to Restoration Church, we are looking for um, a facility to use full time. And uh, we rent this every Sunday that we're in here. And uh, we have an office space downtown in the second floor of the Cornerstone building. For those of you that were joining us um, Friday night for Connection Night, we're next to the awesome ice cream shop, Pop. And uh, we just met together. And uh, our Connection Nights, for those of you that have wondered, Connection Nights really are just for you to introduce yourself to some people you don't know and uh, for you to ask questions that you didn't have the answer to. Because I know that sometimes as a church, we say things like, hey, join us on Church Center. And you're like, where's the Church Center? What's that mean? Um, And so we just want to answer any questions that you might have and give you an opportunity to fellowship together. And so those will be on the schedule from time to time. We will have another one in the month of August. And I can't guarantee that it'll include pop ice cream. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. I don't know. It'll include some type of food. I guarantee you that because you can't really do anything without some type of food. So uh, there'll be something for us to eat together there. But uh, that's what that is. And so we are looking for property, but we want to find a building that would enable us to in some way serve our city and also give us a place that we can meet every week. And so uh, we're praying into what that looks like as a church, and we invite you to do that with us. Um, The money that we got from the sale of our other building is in a... Uh, bank account through AG Financial and is just waiting for us to be able to purchase that that new property. And uh, we are adding to that as money comes in. So for the building fund offering, uh, that's what that's going to. So if you want to be a part of that, the basket in the back or uh, texting 84321 and using the hashtag building fund, we'll get you there. So we've been in a series this summer um, talking about how to live in the kingdom tension. Um, There are things in the scripture that seem to be opposed to one another, and I believe they are by design. Um, We're going to talk about some more of them today, but if you think of a a tightrope walker, a tightrope walker needs to guarantee that that tightrope does not have um, too much tension or not enough tension. And so it has to be pulled in opposite directions. And if it gets pulled too far or too hard in one direction and not the other, or too light in one direction, it's going to cause problems. And so you want to make sure the right amount of, of, of tension is being applied. And so we're starting to look at and talk through some of the ways that Scripture kind of puts us in tension. And I know that... Um, with all of the different denominations and all of the different worldviews that we have in our world right now, every one of us thinks we're right. That's the bottom line. Even people that are like, well, you always think you're right. Um, you know, look in the mirror. Uh, we all think we're right. And that's based off of how we look at Scripture, how we interpret Scripture, how we were raised, maybe the church we were raised in, the things that we were taught. There's something called uh, confirmation bias. Confirmation bias uh, is that whatever the first thing I'm taught is, even if I'm given evidence that disproves the first thing I was taught, I will tend to believe the first thing I was taught. Even if overwhelming evidence can be presented that that is wrong, 
I will still believe the first thing I was taught. That's my confirmation bias. And a lot of times we're, we, we don't understand how often we read the Bible through the lens of that confirmation bias and not through the lens of community, the biblical community that we're called into, not in the lens of the context that that scripture was written in and how we understand it. And so that's kind of what we've been processing through, not just really this series, but that's what we've really been going through since 2020, looking at the Bible as a story. And I will refer back today even to the series that we went through called Trust the Story, which assumes that the Bible is a complete book. It's a complete revelation. Now, I know it's separate books, and I know they were written in separate ways, but God draws a line through Scripture. He is telling a story, and His character is consistent throughout it. But what happens is, as human beings, sometimes we get off course, and so He gives us these checkpoints. At the beginning, He spoke through Adam and Eve, and then this was God's plan to have a people on earth on display, displaying His character, displaying His nature. Adam and Eve got off course, so He brings us back. He brings us through Noah. He brings us through Abraham. And then the children of Israel, and then they get off course, and so He sends them into exile. And while they're in exile, they come back on course, and then they get off course again. And so God sends Jesus at just the right time to get us back on course. And if we go back and we look at all of these checkpoints, they need to line up. And sometimes we just go, well, okay, here's the beginning, here's the end. As long as we get to the end, that's all that matters. Mm-mm-mm-mm. We got to go through all the checkpoints. So when you read a scripture and you're like, the Apostle Paul says this, you might be reading it up here and the checkpoint of scripture goes this way. And you've got to bring that thing into line with everything else God has revealed throughout Scripture. And you can't do that alone. God doesn't want us to do it alone. He put us in community, the body of Christ. Now, I know in our American individualistic lifestyle, we think all we need is Jesus in the Bible, and I'm fine. False, because the Bible teaches you can't do it alone. The Bible teaches you need the body of Christ. You can't say to any other part of the body, I don't need you. False. You need that part. Not because you think you need that part or not because you like that part or not even because you agree with that part. And we tend to romanticize the Bible. What I mean by that is we tend to look at the Bible through this lens of like perfection. Like the early church, we just got to get back to the early church, but we don't look at all the warts on the early church. So then we have this idea of what church should be like. And, you know, churches that are unified should look like this. And if you actually read the scripture and you look at the culture that's happening in some of these verses, you realize that the early church was just as dysfunctional as the church today. In fact, we tend to look at Jesus' disciples and think, oh, man, we just should be like the disciples. And if you understand some of the things Jesus is saying, some of the things the disciples are saying, and some of the worldviews that some of them have, we would recognize the world is not getting worse and worse and worse and worse. It's always been bad. And God is coming to bring alignment to it. Today we're going to talk about the table manners of Jesus, the table manners of Jesus. And so we're going to eventually go to Luke chapter 6, but I want to set the scene 
because uh, the first couple weeks of this series, we talked about how Jesus had corrected the Pharisees and how he corrected the Sadducees. And I want to introduce you or reintroduce you to these five groups of people. And so there are five groups of people that we have in Jesus's day, in five groups among the Jews. Okay, These are all Jewish people, but they are living in the time that Jesus walked the earth. The first group is the Essenes. Can we throw those five groups up on the table or on the screen of the table? Um, the Essenes are this group of people that live out in the desert, um, and they, are, they believe in total separation. They believe in don't do anything um, with Rome. Don't do anything with the culture. We have to be totally a separate people. We are radically devoted to God. Now, if you know John the Baptist, we believe John the Baptist comes out of this group. Okay, that's why he's in the desert. That's why he's preaching the message he's preaching. That's his worldview. That's how he views scripture. The second group is the zealots. Now, we know that Jesus brought a zealot into one of his disciples. The zealots were the, the group of people that believed the way God was going to overthrow the Romans and overthrow the world was kill everybody. So they would kill Jews that were not being faithful. They would kill Romans every chance they get. They were like the militia of the day. They're like, we are going, they're literally like a terrorist organization among the Jews. And yet Jesus calls one of them to be his disciple, at least one. Okay, then we have the Herodians. The Herodians are those people that think, you know, we can serve God, but we can enjoy the benefits of like the Roman culture. Like, I like indoor plumbing. Anybody else? Um, I, so in our day, this would be like the people that like are like, uh, you know, I like to watch shows on Netflix. And you would go to church with someone who is in a scene and they'd be like, you shouldn't even have a TV in your house. TV waves are of the devil. OK, are, are both of them right or wrong? And we in our American culture feel like we have to choose one or the other because there's no way an Essene and a Herodian can sit at the same table false because they did with Jesus and Jesus calls it why do you think the disciples had all these arguments about who was the greatest they're arguing about who's the most right whose worldview is right and obviously out of these okay so the Sadducees are the priesthood we talked about them last week with the triumphal entry of Jesus in charge of the temple Zechariah John the Baptist's father would have probably been a part of the Sadducees so the Sadducees are not all corrupt there were good priests that were a part of this system. Jesus was not coming in the temple and just saying, all of you are bad. Everyone who has this worldview, you're bad, evil. That's not what Jesus was saying. He's exposing the corruption that's there, but he's not dismissing all of the people. And then we have the, the Pharisees who lived out in the, the, the sticks, as we talked about, not in Jerusalem, but out in the communities among the common people. And they were wanting to be true to Torah, the law. They wanted to obey it, and they wanted to teach it, and they wanted to be true to it. And now we tend to think that the world is getting worse and worse and worse since the time of Jesus. But I would argue that the time of Jesus with these groups of people is the exact same as the culture we live in today. In fact, I'll keep it PG because we have some young in the room, but I will show you 
from archaeological finds, ways that child sacrifice was happening, happening ways that sexuality was being, uh, being okayed by cultures, even through the Roman Empire, pedophilia was celebrated in ways in the Roman Empire. So please do not buy into this narrative that it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse and we have to fight against the downward spiral, spiral of culture and stand against it and be this cultural warrior because we will do a disservice to the kingdom of God and we will use the sword on people that we were not intended to use the sword on. And so the reason that God calls us to sit with different people at the same table with Christ at the center of it, the head of it, is because he realizes that each of us has a tendency to see things a certain way. And as we sit together and as we wrestle even through our disagreements, we realize there are other ways to see things. There are other biblical ways to see things. That I do not have a corner on the market of truth and everything doesn't have to flow through the lens I want it to flow through. So imagine in our culture today that we have a man at a table or a woman at the table wearing a Make America Great hat. And at the same table, we have someone wearing a Black Lives Matter shirt. And we have one person at the table wearing a mask. And we have another person at the table saying, vaccines, this is all a hoax and it's made up and it's poison. What do we do? And see, we have bought into the narrative, and this is what I don't understand about Christians today, because we're, we're saying that the world is trying to divide us, <laughs> and we're doing the same thing. And we don't think that I can sit at the table and value someone who has a different opinion than me because I'm not being true to the Scripture. And that's the scene that Jesus walks into. The exact same problem. I don't know if you've watched any of the episodes of The Chosen that have come out, but I, I'm not going to say I agree with everything that they put on the screen, um, but I love that they make us wrestle with things that we tend to gloss over. Um, the way the disciples are interacting with the words of Jesus, you have to remember, they wanted to walk away from Jesus at a time. In fact, remember in John chapter 6, many disciples left him and never followed him again. Jesus made some statements that kind of messed with them. And the disciples, even those that were closest to him, realized, because he turned to them and said, do you want to leave too? And they're like, yeah, but we don't know where else we would go because we believe you're God. And so I don't know what to do sometimes when I believe that someone's a true believer. So I've, I watch their life. I've been up close. I mean, we like to judge people from a distance, but you got to get up close in people's life. Okay, so if you're not going to sit at a table with someone, please don't judge their life from a distance because you will get it wrong every single time. And you don't want people doing that to you, so please don't do that to other people. That's why we as a church have a logo that's a table because we believe this is what Jesus is doing when he comes to the world and this is what he's called his followers to do. Not just have a meal together, but open our lives to each other. Get close enough to one another that we can actually see and value and love people that even we disagree with. If you can't value someone's opinion who's different than yours, I think you've missed the message of Jesus. I didn't say you had to agree with it, but we have to be able to value it. So Jesus comes into this situation and he, he pushes, he makes some tension. 
because he realizes the tension is good. But again, as we've talked about in our Western world, we kind of like this idea that everything is clean and neat and tidy. There are, there are two scriptures that are in the Old Testament that kind of talk about this tension. Psalm 89 verse 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before you. In Isaiah 28, 17, it says, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. See, these are two wor words that I think we, e even in our day to day, we wrestle through this. Because there are a lot of people in the church that trumpet the righteousness parts of God. The righteousness aspects of God are, you know, things like abortion, things like marriage, things like morality, and they're right. These things are in the word. These things are the righteousness of God. But there's a tension because sometimes we get heavy on righteousness and we neglect matters of justice. Matters of justice talk about the poor. They talk about the foreigner. They talk about minorities. They talk about justice issues. And we tend to lean one way or the other. And that's what's kind of happened in our political divide. We have people that are trumpeting righteousness and people that are trumpeting justice. And God's like, no, both of them are the foundation of my throne. And if you can't bring these two together, you'll never understand my kingdom. And we try to fit the kingdom of God into a political system, and it doesn't work. It just doesn't. I mean, because the kingdoms of this world and the kingdoms of God are separate. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be involved in politics. Absolutely, we should be involved. Absol we should be involved in every facet of our society, in education, in government, in um, social issues. We should be involved in all of it because we are the people of God putting him on display. But we better make sure that we're putting him on display correctly and not just according to our own preference or our own bias. And I know people that are registered Republicans, and I know people that are registered Democrats, and I believe both of them love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And I just sometimes don't know how to stay at the same table with all of them. But here's what I believe. I need to learn. Because that's what Jesus modeled for us. Part of the, the problem is we see the hypocrisy. So if I stand up and declare that marriage is sacred and we have to honor marriage, because we had a lot of politicians that, and pastors that were doing this, and then what happened was we found out that they were having affairs, or then they went through a divorce. And it kind of seems hypocritical to stand up and say marriage is sacred and your own is like falling apart, and you're not honoring your own marriage. Now here's the thing, is that hypocritical? Well, yeah. But does that mean marriage isn't sacred? No. And so we can't use that as a reason to say, well, see, that it's just... No, the word is still says marriage is sacred. And so we can't let the hypocrisy of, of one side lean us to the other. And for those that talk about like caring for the poor and the injustices that are happening, they sometimes use control and they use greed as a way to go about it. And there's, there's hypocrisy on both of these sides. And we, we cannot let that shape the way we treat one another. And I'll show you what Jesus is doing and what he's talking about here in Luke chapter 6. But you've got to know that when Jesus comes on the scene and he starts saying the things that he's saying, he has to use a verse like Matthew 5.17 to clarify it. Matthew 5.17, Jesus in the middle of all this 
that he's teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, says, do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but fulfill them. See, what had happened is the nation of Israel had gotten so off course, and Jesus comes to bring it back, okay? Here's the line, and then they go like this, and Jesus is like, no, the interpretation of Scripture is not that, it's this. And I'm not abolishing the law. I'm not doing away with it. I'm actually showing you how it was intended to be interpreted all along. You just got off course. Because there are scriptures that seem to say that you, you can't share a table with a Gentile. And yet, all of a sudden, Jesus finds himself doing the things that it seems like the law is forbidding. And, and Jesus is like, I know that you thought that meant this. But I promise you, this is what the Father meant all along. And he's just drawing a line through it. We in the church today kind of do this with the Apostle Paul. We pull things out of, out of the writings of Paul, and I think we put them up here. And if we would actually step back from the Word of God, and we would look Genesis through Revelation, and we would stay with the benchmarks that run all the way through Scripture, there's no way we could put that up there. And the problem is, when we start to do this with one thing, everyone gets nervous. I'll just tell you, I think the way we treat women in the church is one of them that's up here. And if we would understand the line that God and Jesus himself is doing throughout Scripture, we wouldn't do it. But the moment we start having that conversation, then what we get nervous about is, now, Pastor, you're going to say that homosexuality is not a sin, right? No, I'm not going to say that. I think God's word all the way through, line to line, is going to show us that God had a design for human sexuality and any sexuality outside of a covenant marriage between man and woman would be wrong. That's what I think scripture teaches. And so just because I think there are some things that we need to correct doesn't mean everything needs to be corrected. So we don't have to get nervous and start thinking, oh, he's just gone off the deep end. Because that's, what that's exactly what they were doing with Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, I didn't come to abolish it. I came to show you the correct way. I came to fulfill it. So what, things like what Jesus is doing in Luke 24, um, he's showing them on the road to Emmaus, you foolish men, how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer and to come into his glory? So beginning with Moses, the law, and the prophets, he explained to thing, the, them the things that were written about himself in the scriptures. So Jesus is like, hey, I'm the new benchmark, okay? You thought the law and the prophets meant this, and you started going this way, but I came to show you what the Father's like to set a benchmark right here. Now you've got to run everything through me, and then you've got to keep on that course. Now, many of you know, since Jesus left 2,000 years ago, we have not stayed on course. <laughs> Let's just say it. Okay, there are things that we need to make sure we bring back into line with what Jesus taught and what the scriptures has taught all the way through. Jesus also said to the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees in, Luke, in John chapter 5, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me and you refuse to come and receive this life. See, here's the thing. As we have all of these different worldview discussions, here's what I've found. Everybody has proof. They have video evidence, they have scientific evidence, and they have biblical proof. Whatever you want to believe today, you can find whatever you need to believe it. Promise you, you'll find it. You will find scriptures to back it up. You will find scientists and doctors to, to, point it, to prove it. So here's the thing. Every one of us could be right. And the scripture warns of that. 
in Judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And we miss the fact that Jesus calls us into fellowship around a table in community with other believers that we read the word like-minded, thinks that everyone has to see everything exactly like me, and I don't think that's true. I'm going to show you again. So we're almost in Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 5, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to the sect, of the, to their sect, complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? What are you doing at a table with people you sh- the law f- strictly forbids that you shouldn't be at a table with? Luke chapter 7, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to dinner. So now he's not just at a table with them, he's at a table with the Pharisees too. But a woman comes in who lived a sinful life and learned that Jesus was at the Pharisee's house. So she came with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair, kissed them. Now she is violating Torah. She's a sinful woman touching a man that's not her husband. This is total violation of the law. What do you do with this? Why are you letting this woman touch you? And so the Pharisee obviously says, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman this is. She's a sinner. Boom. And don't think we don't do that same thing with people that disagree with us in our worldview. And they did it to Jesus. Now, we would never do it to Jesus. No, we wouldn't. And that's why we need each other. That's why we need to humble ourselves and say, yeah, I would be exactly like them if I don't keep my heart open to what God is doing. If I don't stay with people that disagree with me, if I don't wrestle with the scripture, I'm not talking about five minutes you've checked off your devotion time in the morning and I read the Bible today. I'm talking about we get in the book and we study it and we memorize it and we learn it and we don't just read the parts we like, we read all of it and we try to keep it in context and run that line through it and we do it in a community of believers. If we're not going to do that, I guarantee you we will miss the mark. We will. Luke chapter 15, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, and the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and he eats with them. So there's this tension. Jesus is violating the law. He's, because if he sits at a table with a sinner and shares a meal, what you have done is given approval to that person. You can't. Now, You could be hospitable. You could prepare a meal for your enemy, but you couldn't sit and eat that meal with them. In fact, in the Middle East, hospitality is huge. You even prepare meals for your enemy because that that area of the, the world is so nasty and you just don't let people die out in the wilderness. You serve them a meal, but you would not dare sit at the table with them because that's a sign of covenant. You're not going to do that. And Jesus comes into this messy middle, and what is he doing? Was Jesus approving of sinners? Yeah. Was he approving of their sin? No. And I know that we like to think we do this too because we're like, well, you, you know, you've got to love the sinner and hate the sin. Yep, but what I think we've done now is we've equated love the sinner to mean tell them about their sin. 
And it's not really about valuing them. It's not really about honoring them. It's not really about laying down our lives for them. It's just about telling them what we think they need to hear. Now, does that statement mean that there's never a time to tell someone about sin? No, it doesn't mean that at all. But some people will hear it that way. The same people that wanted to know why Jesus was sitting at a table with these people. See, I've wrestled with this issue for so long, and I've tried to get other people to help me process it, and I always process with our church body, and I also process with people outside of our church body that are studying the scripture, that are other pastors, other church leaders, people that have more degrees than me, because I want to make sure that I never do a disservice. So I always bounce questions off of them. And one question that I asked them one time, and I, we just never could come to a conclusion, was could, please hear this, could what Jesus is doing at the table be the same thing as being asked to bake a cake for a homosexual wedding. That was a great question because I, I watched all of them try to answer it and it's like, ah. Because here's what I believe. I believe that you can love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and be totally committed to Scripture and not bake a wedding cake for a homosexual couple. Here's what I believe. I believe you could be totally committed to God, totally committed to his word and scripture, believe homosexuality is a sin, and still bake a wedding cake for a homosexual couple. I really think you could do it either way. And one, I know that what we're saying, is, but people will get the wrong idea, and they'll, they'll believe that we're condoning that behavior, and yet Jesus did some of those exact same things culturally, and yet was even accused of condoning their sin. And yet he wasn't. And by actually giving them value, because what used to bother me was, we don't know what Jesus said at most of those tables. And I'm like, if we just knew, what did Jesus say that got Zacchaeus to like repent? Like, what, what was it? Man, if I could just know what Jesus wrote in the sand with the woman caught in a jaw, if I just knew the facts, if I just knew the message that I needed, and I finally came to the, the realization, I don't need to know the message. Because whatever Jesus said at the table or whatever Jesus wrote in the sand, it was consistent with his message everywhere else. And the point is, Jesus valued the person. And once the person felt valued and loved and accepted, even though they knew, the Samaritan woman knew, you have no business talking to me. What are you doing? But she felt valued. She felt heard. And in that moment, Jesus was able to talk about her sin. And we feel like, all, but because, but pastor, we have the truth. So we have to stand up on the street corner and talk about the truth. If you do, you better be willing to lay down your life for the people who actually disagree with your truth. Because that's what Jesus taught us in Luke chapter 6. So here's three questions that I want us to wrestle with. Don't worry, I know what time it is. Three questions that we're going to wrestle with this week. I've been giving you questions every week. Question number one, how do we see others? How do we see others? How do we identify them? How do we label them? How do we value them? How do we value their, their viewpoint? How do we decide who can and cannot be at the table? Because I know there are some scriptures that seem to say in the messy book of Corinthians that this brother is so immoral that you have to put him out of the church. But what I do find interesting 
in the book of 1 Corinthians, we find so much stuff that the Apostle Paul has to try to wrestle through and correct and teach on. And yet in all of that mess, sexual immorality, mistreating each other, um, taking each other to court, all kinds of stuff going on. There was only one guy that needed to be put out of the church. And that's our go-to. The moment someone disagrees with me at my table, they got to get out of our church. We, got, we can't even eat with them, Paul says. Yeah, I know it's there. It's righteousness, but we got to keep justice at the same place mm, so we can keep the tension in the line the way we were meant to. So Luke chapter 6, look at this. Jesus says in verse 27, To you who are listening, I say this, love your enemies. Boom. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn the other. If someone takes your coat, don't let them don't withhold your shirt. Give to everyone who asks. Anyone who takes belongs to you. Do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you only love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to get anything back, and your reward will be great, and you'll be children of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Notice Jesus says love, not tolerate. 1 John chapter 3 defines love perfectly for us. This one's not on the screen, but you'll find it 1 John chapter 3. John talks about love, and he defines it clearly. This is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us. So you ought to do that. So if I'm going to speak the truth in love, I better be ready when that person disagrees with my message to lay down my life to serve them, to value them, to love them, to honor them. But if we really want to understand this, we have to understand where these Jews are in Roman, under Roman authority. Imagine, if you will, the nation of Iran coming into America and overthrowing us. Okay? They have set up Sharia law. So now, as Americans, we are, we are still Americans, but we're under Iranian occupation, forced to obey Sharia law. They can, at any time, beat, steal, spit on, kill, just to make an example, so that we will become afraid of them, and we will be forced into submission. Into that context, Jesus walks and says, I say, love your enemies. Whoo! See, just when you thought you had Jesus figured out. I mean, we have a hard enough time loving our political enemies and our cultural enemies. What on earth would we do if we were actually under occupation from someone else? <laughs> what would we do? Now, some of you might be saying, well, Pastor Tom, come on, you, you can't take it literally. Well, we take other things literally. Why can't we take this literally? Because it doesn't fit our worldview. Because it doesn't fit what's practical. 
Only Jesus modeled it for us totally. He totally did this. Jesus is not saying, I don't have time to go into all of the nuances. I've done it in the past. Go back and listen to the trust the story messages. Jesus is not saying we do nothing. Okay, so turn the other cheek doesn't mean do nothing. It actually is a bold statement in this cultural era where this person is slapping you as if you are not their equal, and Jesus is saying, make them slap you in a way that shows you are their equal, but you're letting them do it. So in other words, you stand up, but you don't, you don't do it in a, in a retributive way. You don't return evil for evil, but you do make a statement, but you do it in a sac- self-sacrificing type of way. Because you have to make the statement. You don't just do nothing. So over here is do nothing and just let everybody walk all over you. And over here is defend yourself and do it in a a retributive way. You know, you did this to me. The Bible says eye for eye. Eye for eye makes the whole world blind. And somewhere Jesus is saying in the middle of that is where I'm calling you to live. You've got to figure out how to navigate this, this tension. We live in a day and age where we're talking all about cancel culture. Oh, man, they're, they're just canceling us because they don't like our message. See, I grew up in the 80s, and what I don't understand right now is why the church is so upset with what the world is doing to the church when we did it all through the 80s. Because we told everybody what product you could and couldn't buy, what store you could and could, couldn't shop at because you didn't want to use your money to, to, to go to a place where people were doing unrighteousness. <laughs> what product could you buy? Because there's unrighteousness in all of us on some level. And I get why we were doing it, but yet Jesus in this moment says God causes, he's kind to the just and the unjust. He causes rain flourishing to fall on both. See, what we have done in the church is we've returned kind for kind, and we wonder why that hasn't brought revival. But we have this theology that the world's just going to get worse and worse, and so we're just on this downward spiral, and I wish we would just step back and say, I wonder if what we're doing is not right. I wonder if there's another way for us to respond right now that doesn't compromise the truth of God's word, but actually costs me something and actually shows the value of that person that I've just devalued with my Facebook post. Maybe. I know I'm making you all uncomfortable. I love the fact that you come here week after week even though I make us all uncomfortable. Please don't think that I'm comfortable (laughs) because I don't know how this works either. But it's in the book. Okay, the second question. Second question. How do we see ourselves? How do we see ourselves? I've already said that, of course, we all see ourselves as right. (laughs) So Luke chapter 6, next verse, verse 37. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. We're going to stop there for a second. Because I know that this has in our society been taken out of context where now we can't say anything is wrong or anything's a sin. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying don't make a final judgment on someone from a distance when you don't know all that's going on in that situation. See, we can look at someone and say, well, they are definitely not in the kingdom of God. But what we need to do is skip down to verse 41, and it says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. Well, Jesus, of course, couldn't have been talking about homosexuality because that is not a speck of sawdust. 
How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? Hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye and you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. What Jesus is saying, again, he's not saying do nothing. He's not saying don't say anything is, not, is a sin. But he's saying don't say it all the time too. Somewhere in between. Because you have to live in a world where you recognize that you have faults. All of us in this room, here's four different types of faults. All of us have open faults. Can we throw those up on the screen? We all have open faults. Open faults means everyone sees them, including me. We all have hidden faults. These are the faults that I have. I know I have them, but I hide them very well from the rest of the world. And all of us have them. Then we have these things called blind faults. These are the things that I have in my life that are faults, and I don't see them, but all of you do. And then I have these unknown faults. And they're the faults that I don't see and you don't see. But God still sees. And when God calls us to a table together in a community of believers, the blind faults and the unknown faults are what we get to deal with. And it's not always because someone overtly tells you about it. In fact, sometimes, because no one can tell me about my unknown faults, you don't know them. But as we learn to walk in fellowship together, even when we don't see eye to eye, and we learn to wrestle through some of these things, and we stay covenanted together, because we live in a church culture now where we leave no matter what. This has been ridiculous. I'm leaving my church because of their stance on masks. I'm leaving my church because of their stance on social issues. I'm leaving my church. You were never in that church. I mean, is there ever a time to leave a church? Yes. Is it every time? No. Every time I'm uncomfortable, I leave? My Lord, if I would have left, I wouldn't have been here 23 years. Every time I got uncomfortable, well, I must need to go on to another place. No. Well, if I just had a different congregation? No. Do you have flaws as a congregation? Yeah. Are, do you have some hit blind faults, things you don't see, but I do? Yeah, but so do I. And that's, the, what, that's Jesus' point. You have to live in this tension of, I know I have these two, so I have to make sure before I run my mouth and tell you what your faults are, i got to make sure that I'm seeing right. And if I'm not dealing with myself, I'll never see right to deal with you. But we live in a world where we just want to deal with everybody else, not ourselves. So we've got to ask, how do I see others? How do I see myself? Uh, I, I don't have time for this, but I'm going to put it up anyway. Revelation 21, 7. Um, I forgot to read this one. This is where, but nothing unclean, okay? Last days, heaven, the golden city, it's all there. Nothing unclean will ever enter it. No one who practices abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Abomination. Every time I hear that word abomination, I think of two passages of Scripture in the Old Testament. The first one is Leviticus 18.22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And so instantly we're like, wow, man, if people practice homosexuality, they can't be in the kingdom because it's an abomination. But then I think of Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. There are six things the Lord hates 
seven that are an abomination, meaning the seventh is an abomination. The one who sows discord among brothers. Ouch. Here's the tension. If someone is a practicing homosexual, the Bible calls that an abomination. If you're a gossip and a slanderer, the Bible also calls that an abomination. But we tend to think one is worse than the other. And they're not. Both of us are in desperate need of the mercy of God all the time. I am so desperate for the mercy of God in my life because I have faults that I am not even yet aware of. And that doesn't mean I can't say anything is not a si- or a sin. No, I, I can. You've got to live in that tension. Then we come to the final question. How do we see Jesus? How do we see Jesus? In Luke chapter 27, we talked about the people on the road to Emmaus as they were coming to And Jesus was opening their minds to the scripture. And they didn't recognize, his own disciples didn't recognize him as Jesus. And then they come to the table in verse 30. And it came about when he had reclined at the table with them, he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he began giving it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. I don't have time today to read through some scriptures from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and chapter 12, but I'd write them in your notes. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul is talking about something in the Corinthian church. He's already talked about the lawsuits and the immorality, the sexual immorality and the mistreatment of others. And then he comes to to chapter 11 and he's like, I don't have anything good to say about you in this moment. And it has to do with them coming to the Lord's table. So if you want to get your communion elements, we're going to end our service today at the Lord's table. Because what this table represents for us is Jesus. It represents what he did. He, he gave his body. He shed his blood for us. And the, the church was doing that, but what they were doing was they were actually mistreating a segment of the body. So, in other words, it would be like us saying, you know, we're the only ones who are right. And I'm going to treat you as an enemy. I'm not going to love you because I'm better than you. Now, we would never say that out loud, but we would live that way. And that's what Paul is bringing to attention when he says, there are many of you that are sick, many of you that are dying, because you're not recognizing the body of the Lord. And some church denominations have made that, that these elements are absolutely so sacred that you, you know, you have to like have a, a very solemn moment and you can't like take communion flippantly. You have to like really think about it. And, and I'm not saying that's not true. Well, maybe parts of that aren't true. <laughs> because I think you could take communion every day of your life everywhere you go with every person you ever have a meal with. Use water and whatever you have, a Skittle, I don't care. Because it's not about what the elements are. It's about the body of Christ that you're recognizing. And if you're sitting with a fellow believer, you can take communion together. You don't have to agree on every little detail of how all of this works out. You're recognizing, I sit at the table with people that are just like me. They're flawed. They have faults they don't see, but I see. They have faults that I don't even see, just like me. 
And we're both dependent upon the mercy of God. And as we learn to sit together and fellowship together and wrestle together with the, the hurts and the offenses, man, we are so quick to run away from people when they hurt us. Whether it's in our marriages today, it would do us well to look at what covenant means. Because marriage is a covenant. And we have made it a contract. As long as you hold up your end, I'll hold up my end. But if you don't hold up your end, I'm out of here. Is there ever a time to divorce? Yeah, the Bible says there is. Is it every time? Never. Because even if someone doesn't hold up their end of the bargain, I'm in a covenant, which means I'm going to serve you. And we don't like that. So I might actually have to attend a church that makes me uncomfortable, not because they're preaching sin, but because I don't like everything. I'm going to stay at the table, and I'm going to learn how to fellowship because I believe the only way we recognize those hidden faults. In the multitude of counselors, Proverbs says, there's much wisdom. The only way we're ever going to see that is if we learn to stay at the table. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul goes into this idea, the analogy of the human body. And none of us should say to another part of the body, I don't need you. And we may not say that with our mouths, but many of us say that with our lives. I only need you on Sunday morning for an hour and 15 minutes, and other than that, I don't need you. That's so foreign from what the body of Christ is called to be. We serve as long as it's convenient for me and my family. I'll give as long as it's convenient. I mean, I know the Bible might say some other things about that, but, you know, I'm just really trying to do the best I can for me. And we wonder why the world doesn't look at the church in America and want what we've got. We don't value each other. We don't value them. But we praise God and we say, hey, your faults, I see them, and you don't. Let me tell you about them. And we pretend like we've got none. Now, don't get me wrong. Everything the church is doing isn't wrong. But there are some things that we need to correct. And as a church, we've been on a journey trying to correct them in our lives. And I don't know if you thought this was going to be faster <laughs> than it was. Uh, I didn't. In fact, I told the, the, our leadership team when we started making changes, I said, you really need to pray because Christy and I did because there was no way we were going to make some of the changes that we made. And then in two months when it got hard, say, well, the Lord opened a door for us to go to another church. I said, we're going to have to stay and we're going to have to fight and we're going to have to wrestle. And I said the same thing to our leadership team. You've got to make sure going in we know what we're doing and that we're willing to pay the price for this because not everyone's going to like it. It's messy. And sometimes we get misunderstood and we're like, well, are you saying this? And the only way you're going to find out is to sit at a table and say, what are you saying? Help me understand. Help me to, to wrestle with this. And that's what this represents. So over this week, I want, us to I want us to ask ourselves, how am I seeing other people? How am I seeing myself? And how am I seeing Jesus? Because I guarantee you, Jesus is sitting at a table with someone in your life that you're not sitting with right now. Guarantee it. Every one of us in this room has isolated ourselves from someone that we are just like, nope, that person's out of my life. Now, don't take this the wrong way. I'm not telling you if you left an abusive relationship that you should get back in that relationship. That's not, remember the tension. 
And so if you want someone to help you navigate, I can't give you the answers, but I can help you navigate some of these choices. But I promise you, we have written people off. We have pushed people away. We have held them out here. And Jesus is actually sitting at a table with them. And so as we take communion to end this service, I hope that the Holy Spirit opens our hearts and our minds to be able to see this this week. And so, Father, we come to your table right now. And we, we hold these, these symbols in our hands. This cup, this, this cracker, this bread. And God, we remember what it is that you did for us. When we were your enemies, you did this. You demonstrated love when we were your enemies. You laid your life down. And we don't have any enemy in our lives that's more of an enemy to us than we were to you. And God, we just totally admit right now that your kingdom blows our minds. Because our human minds, we just, we can't live in these tensions. I mean, we tend to just cling to righteousness or justice, but it's it's hard to cling to both. We, We tend to love mercy or love truth, but man, it's hard to stay in the tension of both. And yet you came to this earth full of grace and full of truth. You modeled for us what this kingdom looks like. And every day, your mercies are new because every day we fall short of it. And every day we make a mess of it. And every day we want to call down fire on our enemies just like James and John wanted to just burn up the Samaritans for their rejection. And every day you remind us Your kingdom is not of this world. And so, Holy Spirit, in this moment, as we gather around this table, we recognize we need to see people like you see people. We need to see ourselves the way that you see us. And we need to see you, your body. Not just you, your head, but we need to see you, your body way that you see us. So Holy Spirit, as, as pastor of this church, we need grace. We know there's something inside of us that says, man, if we could put this on display in our world today, man, people would be drawn to it. It would change people's lives. God, we never want to compromise your word on either side. So help us to navigate these moments. As we take these elements today, these symbols of your body and your blood, Holy Spirit, use this sovereign moment to shape our mindsets and our lives in fresh ways. Let's partake those elements together now. Holy Spirit, help us to see this week the things that we weren't seeing before. Help us to be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to become angry because human anger 
does not produce the righteousness of God. Help us to navigate this messy world. But stay true to every benchmark that you have put in the word to keep us on your path. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Man, thank you guys for staying with me um, during this time. I know that this is a hard message, and it's hard for us to navigate it, but here's what I know. God's committed to finish the work that he started. And so I don't want you to leave here today feeling like, oh, man, I, I screw this up. So do I. Man, almost daily. Like, almost daily I say something, and I'm like, man, that's outside. I went that way. Why did I do that? And I bring it back. I don't live in this condemnation. I live in the grace and the mercy of God and say, God, I need to correct it. Help me get it right. And I believe as a church, that's where we're headed. And we invite all of you to be on that journey with us. And so, God bless you as you go today. Don't forget to stop by the table in the back. Uh, We've got the shirts for sale if you're a guest. We've got a gift we want to give you back there as well. Um, Offering baskets will be on the table as well. Thank you for being here today. I love you guys. God bless you as you go.